Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 378. Everybody is killing everybody else, and no one's talking about it. Part 1. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and thank you very much to Aaron, Dreyer, and Story for signing up already. On the year 1059, there's an enigmatic entry in the Welsh Chronicle. It says that on that year... Owain ap Gruffith died, meaning Owain's son of Gruffith. Now, there was more than one Gruffith in the 11th century, but given its place in the Chronicle and the lack of any other explanation around the name, well, that implies that the scribes thought the name needed no further explanation. And as such, this Owain was almost certainly the son of that Gruffith, the King of Wales. Furthermore, Owain likely wasn't just any son of Gruffith. He appears in four Mercian charters, until he vanishes from the records after 1059. Now, witnessing charters in an ally's court is the act of someone who's serving as a diplomat or a politician. It's the job of a person who is in a very significant position of power. And historians looking at these records suspect that Owain was likely King Gruffith's eldest son and therefore, the man who was likely next in line for the throne. And now he was dead. But how and why did a young man with no records of illness or frailty die so suddenly? Well, the Welsh Chronicle doesn't tell us, and so historians have been putting the pieces of this story back together. And it all begins with Wayne's mother. You see, we're never told who she was, and Gruffith actually had quite a few wives, so it's not a simple matter of putting just two and two together. Furthermore, the records don't indicate that any of his wives had died or were set aside, so it's entirely possible that the king just kept getting married, and all those wives were just piling up in court. And culturally, that wasn't out of the question. The rulers of Wales, like many of their neighbors, had a habit of playing fast and loose with the church's mandate for monogamy. In fact, even Welsh rulers that came after Gruffith weren't all that bothered about monogamy and had as many as five wives at the same time. And Gruffith's relationship with matrimony had always been a bit non-traditional. His first known wife was actually the wife of King Hul of Dehybarth, like while Hul was still alive. And it wasn't like they got divorced or anything. Gruffith defeated Hul in battle, kidnapped his wife, and married her. And we're not told what she thought of this. In fact, we're not told anything about her, not even her name. But it's a good guess that Gruffith probably cared as much about her wants as he did about the wants of the people of Dehybarth. He wanted that land, he wanted that title, and he wanted that wife. So he took it all. And like many outcast nobles, Hul fled to Ireland and then hired some Irish Scandinavian mercenaries and returned to Wales in the following year and tried to get his kingdom and, I assume, his wife back. But he was killed in the exchange. And so Gruffith kept his kingdom and his wife. So that's wife number one. And this inauspicious wedding day 
was sometime around 1041. And since Owain appears in the Mercian charters acting in a diplomatic capacity in the 1050s, historian Davies argues that it's likely that Owain was the son of this unnamed captured widow of King Hul of Dehybarth. And we also know that Gruffith had at least two other sons, named Meredith and Idwal. And while we don't know who their mother was, given their position and how they moved in court, it's likely that they were also the children of Gruffith's first unnamed wife. Once you account for the timing and some of their later actions as adults, it's highly unlikely that they would have been the product of a later marriage. They simply would have been too young. Which means that Owain probably had two full-blooded brothers, and Meredith appears to have been the middle son, as he appears rather prominently in witness lists, which suggests that Owain was the heir and Meredith was the spare. And then you had Idwal, the baby of the family. But Gruffith was a busy guy with a lot of ambition, and a wife and three kids just wasn't doing it for him. He wanted lands, he wanted titles, and it seems he wanted wives. Which brings us to wife number two. We have a genealogy that claims that Gruffith married a woman named Canefrid, who was the daughter of Rerid Mauer. And like his first wife, we actually don't know much about Canefrid either. But considering that there's no record of wife number one being set aside or dying, it is possible that Gruffith, like some other rulers, just decided to keep both. Though, because we don't know precisely when this marriage took place, we also don't know how old Owain and his brothers would have been at the time. And that brings us to wife number three, Eldgith. In 1055, when Owain was probably about 14 years old, the exiled English Earl Elfgar fled to the court of King Gruffith and begged him for military support to reclaim his lands and titles. As you'll recall, Gruffith agreed to help, and he led a multinational invasion into England. And this adventure was so successful that Wales got land concessions, had the pleasure of kicking the hell out of Hereford, and they even helped Elfgar get his old job back. Well, at around this same time, Gruffith married Elfgar's daughter, Eldgith, in what was almost certainly some political horse trading. And that was politically savvy, because he'd have a marriage alliance with a man who governed the English territory that bordered his own lands. The records also indicate that Eldgith was a stone-cold hottie, which may have also been why Gruffith set her as the price for his military support. And, as usual, it doesn't look like anyone asked what Eldgith thought about this. Though, if they did, she probably would have had a lot to say. Because according to Walter Mapp, while Gruffith was smitten with his new beautiful wife, she wasn't nearly so enthused. And as you'll recall from the last episode, Walter tells us that Gruffith wasn't handling that very well. But, however unhappy Eldgith was, she was also a noble lady, and her clearest path to power, and to some degree of independence, was to produce an heir. And it seems efforts were being made in that direction, as the pair soon had a daughter named Nest. So, we appear to have three wives, no records of death or divorce, one jealous husband, and stuck in the middle of all of this were a bunch of kids. Basically, we've got the makings for the most depressing Three's Company reboot ever. And add to this fact that the king was getting older, his administrative powers were overstretched, his relationship style had likely bruised at least a few egos, and you can see how things were starting to get tense in Wales. And while Gruffith may have been able to quell the frustrations earlier in his reign, 
times were changing. Wales was at peace. And that wasn't necessarily a good thing for Gruffith. Gruffith was a conqueror. He was a wartime king. He had maintained his popularity through gifts of treasure and land that was won in battle. And now that he was running out of wars, he was also running out of the treasure and lands that were necessary to keep his followers in line. Meaning that these days, if he wanted to keep them happy, he'd need to do it through domestic policy. And everything that we've seen in the record so far suggests that peaceful stewardship of the kingdom wasn't part of Gruffith's skill set. Complicating matters, while each of these three highly political marriages probably made sense at the time, now he had at least four children from as many as three rival lines, and it's quite likely that they, or at least their mothers, were all vying for their children to ascend the throne. And then you have that event in 1059, just a few years after Gruffith married Eldgith, where Owain ap Gruffith, likely King Gruffith's eldest son and heir by his first wife, died suddenly at about the age of 17. Now, historian Davies argues that this could well be a rival court faction moving against the king, or a dynastic struggle between his wives and those who supported them. But regardless of what led to this, it's becoming quite clear that the thing that propelled Gruffith to these extraordinary heights at the start of his reign was now causing him headaches at the other end of it, and his rivals could smell blood in the water. Meanwhile, in England, the scribes of the Chronicle were still skipping years. And when they weren't skipping years, they were spending whole entries talking only about the church. In fact, the Chronicle starts to suspiciously sound like a Christmas card from your aunt. Hello, pet. I hope you're well and didn't get shaken too badly by that earthquake. It's been quite busy here. I mean, Nicholas got promoted, Aldred took that trip he always dreamed about, and sadly, we also had to say goodbye to Kinsey and Dudok. But on the upside, we finally fixed the steeple. We really are blessed. I hope you're well. Loving kisses, the scribes. And those are all real things that the Chronicle covers in the years 1059 to 1062. And the scribes also just completely ignore anything political regarding England. And it's not like nothing was happening. Wales was ascendant. The new king was demonstrating that he was a serious contender on the island. And at the same time, he was forging marriage alliances with one of the most powerful military earldoms in England. And it was an earldom that was governed by a man who had already launched a rebellion against King Edward twice and had won twice. And then also remember that the English court was in a rolling succession crisis and hanging over everything was the shady death of Edward the Exile, who was the man who was best positioned to become the heir to the throne, followed up with the possibility that Edward the Exile's young son, Edgar, was being positioned by some to become the next in line. There was a lot that was going on, and if that wasn't enough to keep you up at night, let's not forget Scotland. After a bloody succession crisis and several dead kings, Malcolm Bighead was the uncontested ruler of Scotland for the first time in ages, and he was reigning as King Malcolm III. And as you might recall, he soon became betrothed to Edward the Exile's daughter, Margaret, who wasn't a particularly well-matched wife for the King of Scotland, being that she was just the young daughter of some exiled noble. Unless you consider that her brother, Edgar, was being positioned to serve as the heir to the throne in England. 
And then suddenly, that betrothal makes a lot of sense. So all of this was happening, and the Chronicle starts sounding like the village newsletter. But thankfully, we have more than the Chronicle. And thanks to those sources, we know that things on the island were beginning to unravel. And when we look at those records, we learn quite a few things. First of all, Margaret, the daughter of Edward the Exile, had reached marriageable age at about this point. And then nothing happened. There was no marriage, which is weird since she was betrothed to King Malcolm III of Scotland. And then second, we learn that in 1061, out of nowhere, the Scots invaded England and plundered Lindisfarne. Now, we're not given any indication in the record for why the Scots invaded England, nor why they raided Lindisfarne. But scholars note that it was right at about this same point that the betrothal of Margaret to King Malcolm wasn't honored by the English. So this raid might have been punishment for breaking the contract. And that does seem likely. The English succession crisis was looming, and there were powerful figures only tangentially connected to the throne who were beginning to position themselves to take over. You know, should King Edward die without an heir? I mean... Just imagine if King Edward fell ill and died sometime and oh, I don't know, maybe the next four or five years, you know, just for the sake of argument. In that case, who would stand to inherit the throne? Well, the strongest claimant was Edward the Exile. He was so strong, in fact, that multiple efforts were made to bring him to England. And then when he did finally arrive, he died mysteriously. So he was off the board. The next strongest claimant was Edward the Exile's son, Edgar. And if he was just a little bit older, he would have made a formidable candidate. As he was from the right family, his father had fostered important political relationships before he died, and, you know, he was on the line of succession. But little Edgar was only nine. So, actually, he was a fairly weak candidate. And then we have the other claimants, but they get increasingly weak as you go through the list. You have King Harold Hadrada of Norway, but his only real claim to England was that about 20 years earlier, his nephew, Magnus, entered into a tontine with King Hartha Canute. And then Hartha Canute died first. Then when Magnus died, Harold inherited his stuff. So King Harold had an argument, a shaky argument, that when he did inherit Magnus's stuff, he also inherited Magnus's claim on England that he won through that tontine. It's a fascinating claim, but not exactly compelling. And Duke William of Normandy's claim was even weaker. He was the great nephew of Emma of Normandy, who had married King Athelred Unred and then later married King Canute. But William wasn't Emma's direct descendant. He was just her great nephew. Furthermore, he was neither English nor a member of the House of Wessex. So overall, a pretty weak claim. You should see me in a but there was someone left who was a member of the House of Wessex and who was a direct descendant of the kings of England. And this person was also an adult. Margaret, the eldest child of Edward the Exile. Now, obviously, the major drawback here was that she was a woman. And in Wessex, that's just gross. And in fact, as you'll soon learn later in this series, medieval England would literally rather fight a civil war than let a woman take the helm. But considering the slim pickings here, 
her claim didn't look all that weak, especially if she was, oh, I don't know, already a queen with the backing of her husband who just happened to be a powerful Scottish king. I mean, so long as it led to an actual king at the end, this could make for a quite potent claim for the English crown, which honestly might be the best thing for England. A clear line of succession and a chance to avoid a civil war probably would be a huge relief for much of England, but not all of England, because there was one other person who was positioning himself for the throne, Earl Harold Godwinson. And Harold had the weakest claim of all, but also potentially the strongest claim of all. Harold's official claim basically broke down to, the king's married to my sister. However, Harold was also English, which many of the claimants weren't, including Edgar and Margaret. And he was also the most powerful noble in the kingdom. And with the exception of Mercia and a few smaller shires, all of England answered to the House of Godwin. Harold Godwinson was an absurdly powerful English noble, and that probably made him a pretty attractive candidate to many of the members of the English court. And considering the role of the Witten in the selection of a monarch, that's a pretty strong indication of how the succession crisis would end. Provided, of course, that nothing unexpected happened. So I wonder if the House of Godwin and their allies were watching this approaching betrothal of Margaret and the risk that she might end up with a powerful and motivated Scottish husband who could press her claim, and they decided to renege on the wedding plans. It's plausible. And honestly, there were plenty of reasons for why the English might have been getting cold feet over this marriage. And there are also plenty of reasons for why the Scots might have been more than a little annoyed that it was called off. So that's likely why Lindisfarne took a beating on that year. But worry not. All was not lost for King Malcolm. At some point around here, Jarl Thorfinn of Orkney died. And that meant that his wife, Ingeborg Finn's daughter, was back on the market. And Ingeborg was the niece of both Harold Hadrada and St. Olaf. So as far as Norse dynastic power goes, Ingeborg had it in spades. And so Malcolm married Ingeborg instead of Margaret, which meant that the North, instead of strengthening its ties with England, became even more linked in with Scandinavia. And that's not all that was happening during this period. In the Midlands, you have King Gruffith's old ally, Earl Elfgar of Mercia. And he was having a hell of a year. Because in 1061, his son and heir, Bergherd, had traveled to Rome along with the Bishop of Dorchester. Now, we're not told why the scion of this powerful dynasty had gone to Rome. But nothing in the record suggests that this was a religious pilgrimage. And some scholars think that Bergherd was actually over there as an emissary for the Mercian dynasty seeking to expand their influence over the ecclesiastical institutions of Lindsay. After all, Earl Elfgar and his children were basically all that remained of the old faction that had once provided a bulwark against the rising power of the Godwins. And those dynasties were still feuding. And for the Mercians, controlling church institutions would serve as an important pillar in Earl Elfgar's ongoing political war with the House of Godwin. And they would need to shore up their influence as Harold Godwinson positioned himself for the throne. Because when push comes to shove, 
Earl Elfgar was probably the most powerful English Earl who would have wanted to keep the Godwinsons from taking the crown. So that very well may have been why Bergherd, Elfgar's son and heir, went to Rome with an allied bishop who was looking to expand his influence over Lindsay. And then, on the way back to England, Bergherd died. Mysteriously. Whoops. Now, Elfgar did have other children, and his younger son, Edwin, was next in line. However, Edwin was quite young and inexperienced. So this was a disaster for Elfgar and the Mercian dynasty. But it was pretty kick-ass for the Godwins. And then, sometime in 1062, probably pretty close to Christmas, and just a year after Elfgar's son had died mysteriously, Elfgar also died. Now, would you like to know how that happened? Well, let's check the chronicle. There's nothing for 1062 in version C or D of the chronicle. In fact, the only version of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle that has anything for 1062 is version E, which is the pro-Godwin version. And let's see what that says. Quote, in this year, Maine was subjected to William, Count of Normandy, end quote. So, I guess we're just not going to talk about Elfgar dying at all? Cool. But in fairness to the scribes, while this entry does sound like nothing, it was actually kind of important. Because what it's telling us is how Walter of Mans and his wife Beota were captured by Duke William of Normandy. And the scribes of the Chronicle won't tell you this, but Walter just happened to be King Edward of England's last surviving nephew meaning that he was one of the strongest French claimants for the English throne. In fact, he was one of the strongest dynastic claimants, period, especially after Edward the Exile had died mysteriously. And then, whoops, Walter and his wife also died mysteriously while imprisoned by William of Normandy. We can't be certain, but this does look like Normandy was trying to prune what little remained of Edward's family tree. Things are moving fast now, and almost no one is talking about it. 